If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. A new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Martin Willis, your host, and I have one of my favorites on with me this evening, a, a very good friend of mine, Alejandro Rojas. Um, he has been, we've been on together each other's shows for years, and uh, I helped him with news on his Open Minds broadcast, and he helped me for many years. Uh, he got, COVID came along, he got super busy. He's been kind of out of it a little bit for a while, and uh, it's my pleasure to be talking to him tonight. And he is uh, right back into it again. We're going to be talking about all of that. And the blog this week is called, it's quite an unusual title, I have to say, French Hairy Dwarves and what, What's-Its. Um, well, this is by Charles Lear, and it's actually chapter seven in his book uh, that has just been released. And he's going to be on in a couple of weeks and we're going to be talking about that book. But basically, he was inspired after doing all these blogs to write his own book. And it's already being really well received. He's going to be on several shows, not just this one, but Coast to Coast and a few others. So I'm really happy uh, for him about that. And let's see, what do we have here in the side private chat? I think everything's OK. So um Again, Alejandro will be on with us in just a minute. I do want to thank everyone that supports the show. That means a great deal to me. I do appreciate every single listener. If you're interested in supporting the show, just go over to podcastufo.com and you'll see support the show. There's a menu at the menu bar on the top. And I'm going to be actually a speaker this uh, weekend at uh, Pine Bush. And uh, I'm really looking forward to being there anyway. And um, last minute, um, one of the speakers uh, for health reasons couldn't couldn't you know 
uh, do his uh, his topic. So I was asked to speak. I'm really looking forward to that. So if you're there and you're listening to the show, please please do say hi. So and uh, the, the other alternative to that is the SCU conference. I'm going to be talking to Alejandro about that. And I really do want to get to that. Hopefully next year they won't fall on the same weekend. But here I am bringing in my buddy Alejandro. Welcome. Hello. I was just busy uh, talking smack about Pine Bush in the chat there. <laughs> telling people they got to go to SCU. But of course, oh, I, oh, a, a lot of our great friends are going to be in Pine Bush, but uh, they're going to be the less educated because oh. they're going to miss out on the SCU. Oh, uh, just very messing kind. with you guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Great to great to see you. Um, that was fun. I went out there and I had a little visit with you. This is uh, you and I, a little picture here. Out oh, on yeah. The coast. Yeah. That was a fun day. Yeah. <laughs> fun couple of days we had. But anyway, it's always good to see you. And I get email every week. Where's Alejandro? What's he up to? So you know, funny. What, you blah, blah, blah. So why don't you tell everyone what you've been up to? I know you've been working and you've been working hours yeah. per day. It's so funny because I look like such a mess right now. Um, but that's because <laughs> I am deep in the trenches. And really, I am back in the trenches uh, more behind the scenes right now in the UAP world. So, um, yeah, I am back. I'm working for a software company that's creating a UAP app. There'll be more coming up on that uh, later on. Really, they're kind of, like they say, working in stealth mode as they get their app rolling. And essentially, I'm their content guy. So I'm developing uh, kind of a Wikipedia for UAP that I am extremely excited about because uh, – we have some excellent writers, and they uh, the pieces are great. I think that this Wikipedia is going to be like perhaps the best resource when it comes investigating um, the serious side of this topic because we've just got a lot of great information and much better takes and more comprehensive information. Um, so is this someone's brainchild that basically reached out to you? Yeah, really. Uh, it's great. This was a, a group. A lot of the people there. So there's a lot of money being put into uh, this topic in certain areas um, and people with money uh, and people in the mainstream are trying to figure out, you know, what to do in this. And and that's good and bad. You know, there are a lot of people and we've talked about this before, Martin, um, and a lot of people get really upset. You know, we definitely have heard it when we charge for um products or charge for our information, but we have to. So for instance, you know, uh, Open Minds was very, very popular, really. Like out of the podcasts out there and the websites, you know, we were getting tons of hits, tons of mm -hmm. listens. You know, I won't say even some of our friends are talking about, oh, I just hit this milestone. We hit that a long time ago at Open That's Minds. Right. But I remember you. Yeah. Uh, me. the point yeah. was that it just, even at that level, it was hard to monetize it. Uh, at a level that wasn't too high and to keep your listeners and viewers. And I don't blame viewers. I've always been of the mind to tr try to provide as much uh, free content as possible. Uh, and, you know, when I started doing this a couple decades ago, even the news, you know, wasn't charging. Nobody, you know, the news was free. They were, you know, relying off of like the sales of their print media and stuff like that. But things have changed a lot. And now even your local outlet is probably charging you a few bucks to read the news, which is really frustrating. But uh, at the same time, we can't do what we do and provide this information without 
uh, monetizing it. And as this topic becomes monetized and more and more money is thrown at it, a lot of people get upset. They get worried about that. But that is actually a good thing, um, no doubt. I mean, if you look at any topic out there that is very popular, tons of money is thrown at it. That's the nature of it, good and bad, because, of course, you have you'll have maybe Disney theme park. It's going to come up with a UAP theme and, you know, it'll probably be based on kind of the silly stuff, um, you know, or, or fictionalized, which gets frustrating or, you know, kind of like what happened. The project blue book TV show was definitely very fictionalized to make it more fun. That sort of thing happens, but at the same time, money gets thrown or, or money is available for more serious uh, stuff. So, uh, these people are trying to come in and, and and look at both sides of things. And the more serious side uh, of things are, are shy to work with UFO researchers. And uh, really, it was because they were trying to work with a mainstream journalist who was just like, hey, I get all my stuff from this guy. That's who you need to talk to because I couldn't have done this without him. And you're not going to be able to do this without an expert. And so that's how I came about it. And they uh, ended up agreeing and hiring me to do this content, which is great because, yeah, I'm able to do it uh, at a more informed level to make sure that our pieces are very comprehensive. And no doubt when we uh, launch you know, our pieces, there's going to be experts on certain cases that are going to say, hey, you forgot this or you forgot that. And I'm oh, yeah. expecting that, but I, I'm, yeah. I'm looking for it as well because you know we'll make sure and keep it up to date as we get that sort of information. But the researchers I have, that's what's beautiful. I'm providing them with a bunch of research on the topics they're writing about, so stuff that I think needs to be in the piece, but they're doing their own research as well and finding even more. And I certainly don't want them to take my take. I want to uh, make sure this unbiased and have their own take um because you know some of the less uh uh credible cases you know are going to be difficult to stand on their own but the better cases of course are are just you know the head shakers the ones where you read them and look at it and you're like what the heck this is this is extraordinary with yeah. all of the references attached to it yeah so now so who, yeah yeah how can let's see i'm just trying to figure out how this thing will work. You say it's an app. So it's an app that anyone can have on their smartphone. And right. in this app is going to be information like updated constantly type of thing. Is that? Yeah. So the app itself um, is going to be a sightings based app. And really they've, they've put out a blog about this um, and I could share it in the chat actually. Um, so people can look at it, which kind of describes who they well, are. You can also uh, share it on the screen too. Oh, okay. Yeah, let me do that. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, I can also put that into the show notes. I'd be glad to do that as well. Yeah, I'll put it in the, the chat here. But uh, really, and the reason I'm sharing this is this is all the information that we've shared thus far. Um, share. And also, I want to talk to you about, you know, the good and the bad of because there's always, you know, for a reaction, there's a reaction type of thing. So um, the good, well, the very good thing, I think, you know, in my opinion, is that uh, this topic is, oh, here you go. Okay. This topic is almost like rolling down, a snowball rolling downhill. It's, uh, people are taking it serious. Science is taking it more serious. We had the hearing. We can talk a little bit about that too. And it's all good. I don't know. So that's the. What, what is the name of this app? 
Yeah. So uh, yeah, to wrap up, Enigma Labs is kind of the company. Mm -hmm. um, the app name hasn't been necessarily determined. Um, and all this is just saying that, that we're coming out with an app. Right now we're working stealthily. Uh, it justifies the importance of doing this. But essentially it's going to be um, um, uh, a signing app. So uh, okay. it's going to be similar to an app called Citizen uh just because there, there's some loose affiliation, but a lot of people are out there, oh, these are the people, or some people are out there saying, these are the people who made Citizen. That's not true. There's maybe uh, one or two similar people, uh, but uh, this is totally different. Hmm. See, okay. we've already got, is this a cash grab or should we pay for the truth? See, those kind of comments are counterproductive and they're they're silly. And, and you guys got to, I think people got to realize what topic out there Um do you get information about for free practically at all anymore? You don't. Um, well, that, that is kind of like, like a, that's kind of like the double-edged sword of, mm -hmm. of what has happened, you know, with the internet and what, you know, there are so many things that people can, you know, get for free. And then it was, it's been a real hard move. Look at the music industry for one. Yeah. Oh, they had to move from, you know, this platform where you'd be, paying for vinyl, you know, records or tapes or CDs or whatever. And then all of a sudden it becomes, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of that, uh, Napster, what was it? Yeah, Napster. Yeah. But the issue, the the kind of the, with this field, and I think this is a problem that people don't realize, especially with, you know, um, grassroots type of efforts like this, you need, there. this is the time when people need money the most. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers because you have to have resources to do this research. Without resources, this research is not going to happen. Well, that's um, why science without, hasn't taken it seriously for Exactly. All without money, it's not going to happen, period. Yeah. Um, and without money, we can't do what we do. Without money, I couldn't do. And that's what I was essentially getting at. I couldn't do what I do. That's why Open Minds went off. Because people like you, welcome to the show, are unwilling to help us do the work that we do. And if you're unwilling to do the work that we do, don't be surprised if it goes away. And if you're not willing to help out monetarily, then do some research and do your own show and get your own information out there. Because that's really what it's, it's it not, may sound harsh, but it's the true reality if that, you know, nothing's going to happen if nobody does it and nobody can do anything without money. So the things that are typically free out there, people put money towards. For Open Minds, the owner of Open Minds probably spent at least a million dollars of his own money. 
And that's a wow. big chunk of his own money. Sure, he's he's got a million dollars, but he had to spend a million dollars of his own money so you people could get that open minds information that is still out there today. And I've demonetized everything to make sure everybody can get something. So there you go. If we don't have some yeah. rich person who is able to spend a million dollars, we don't have anything at all. Or people like you who are dedicated to spending your own time and money to do this. Or people like, like me, because that's what I did for, for many, many years and continue to do. Um, so so that's the thing. Now, this app, I, I think there's going to be a free version. I don't think the mon- the, the side of everything's been figured out. There'll be, But most like most apps, there's a free version. And then there's things that you pay for inside. Uh, so that will be available, but otherwise, yeah, the website and, and our Wikipedia, you know, we're just going to have a lot of great information and, uh, sorry, if you're not willing to pay a dollar or two to, to get that information, then you're just not going to get it. And that's the way the world works. And I think that's what is important uh, with this field. A lot of people love to rally against, it shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't be that way. The hearing should be like this. This should be like that. Well, the world is the way the world is. We can either learn how to operate in it and operate in it efficient and effectively to make things happen, or we can just sit and complain about how things work and not get anywhere. Um, but people like you and I, of course, choose to move forward. So, uh, and without UAP or without Enigma Labs hiring me to do this full time, I wouldn't be able to jump back in. And now I am back in, luckily, because now I'm working for this company that allows me to do UAP research and look into UAPs. That's what they want me to do. They've hired me for my expertise. It's also allowed me to get back involved with the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies. So I'm back on the board with them. That's great. Uh, I helped found that group. And I'm also heading up their their public relations. So we're doing a lot right now to get information out, uh, which I'm sure we'll cover. Yeah. I, I recently, uh, I don't know, maybe a month or so ago, I mentioned uh, that my show was pretty close to going into the red in a little bit, you know, so I, I don't like that. <laughs> and uh, so some people actually, I do want to thank the people that um, went to bat and uh, and brought it back up, you know, so I, I never did this show for money. You know, I, I did it for the excitement, the, the, the knowledge, um, you know, if I didn't have my other thing going on, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't be able to su- survive. I, I don't, I wouldn't be able to pay my electric bill on this. <laughs> you know, yeah. and you're in a position, I think that, and I think this is important too, that most of the people we see involved with this doing a lot of the research are retired. That's when you go, why you go to like a conference and you see so many older people because they don't have the time to kind of spend so much time in their interests until they're retired. So there are a lot of people in their middle ages, in their 30s and 40s, who have family, who have a career, and they have a hard time dedicating time and effort into this. But there are some people like you who do that. And I think that uh, it's great when people, you know, they choose to, and, you know, and and I'm sure many people identify with this, they often choose to uh, struggle with their significant other about balancing their interests in yes. this topic and, and getting involved with that and making time yeah. for it because a lot of us are significant others. I'm extremely lucky because mine is very into this topic, but um, you know um, my only issue is she's pulling me for time to help her out where I've got these other things to do as well. Yeah. So we have a, a different kind of struggle that way. But um, you yeah. know, I think people identify with that. It, it it's, it's a lot to be able to dedicate time to this and a lot of resources are necessary to make, um, real discoveries. I never, I never really talk about my personal life too much on the show, but I will say that, uh, I can, 
I can <laughs> tell you guys all about Martin's personal life. So if anybody yeah. has questions, put them in the chat and <laughs> I'll spill the Thanks, beans. buddy. Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, well, basically, I was with uh, a girlfriend for a long time, many years, and she did not like me doing this show. And she always tried to talk me out into quitting. So um, that relationship ended last year. And so anyway, that's uh, just something I, I'm putting out there that that was that was difficult. Um, that was difficult to do the show when mm -hmm. I would get the constant eye roll and, the, you know, why are you doing this? And, you know, that that type of thing. And but anyway, uh, moving on, uh, I would like to talk about there's a lot of talk. Well, I, I do want to talk about the SCU, SCU and, and the conference and all that. We can get to that. We have quite a bit of time here. But there's a lot of talk going on in the UFO field about this information is right, this information isn't right. Um, and I know that you're, you really like to figure out what, what is true and not true out there. Um, do you want to discuss any of that? What's Sure. I'll discuss whatever you want, buddy. Okay. Um, well, I don't know what I watched some things, you know, that people have sent to me and, you know, I know there was a, there's the a tip controversy and all that and the money that was funded. And then the, um, the Skinwalker Pentagon. What is the name of that book that George Knapp? And uh, Skinwalker and the Skinwalkers at the, at the Pentagon. At the Pentagon. So I want to discuss all that so we can kind of straighten some things out because it's great. It's, it's fuzzy. It's it fuzzy, fuzzy to me. And, you know, um, you know, I heard these things about Lou Elizondo. Uh, I love the guy. I think he's really if it wasn't for him, a lot of things would have never happened. Um, but, you know, there's there's a lot going on. And uh, I'm still in touch with him through his wife, Jennifer, and all that. But uh, he's he's kind of taking it easy right now um, as far as talking on podcasts and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I would want to uh, know specifically what your concern was, because there is so many people talking about different things. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, Lou Elizondo did his last podcast just recently. Um the, the one before his last uh, was with Need to Know with Bryce Zabel and, and Ross Colhart, right. yeah. which was a great interview. And uh, and I what I think was great about that interview, too, is they had similar per views on certain things like the Wilson document. Um, oh, I want to hear about that because I, I've never believed in that myself. Yeah, neither have I. But lose into it. Lose into it. And so are that group of guys. So, wow. um, OK. So I don't know. I think the controversy kind of arises to people not reading my reporting, <laughs> not to be to. Uh, but I mean, we've been talking about this for a long time. And and I've tried to be clear about how ATIP and OSAP started, uh, what was what and who was who. And, you know, as you and I discussed, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of Leslie Kane. I listened to your recent interview with her. Um, it's great that you got her. And of course, she was insightful. Um, and I think talking about real world issues, which is really important. Uh, so it's good that you had her. But, uh, you know, that story from The New York Times in December of 2017 was not complete and it didn't tell the full story. Uh, I think she'll argue that, well, it's hard to tell the full story in just one article and make it a, and really get the bang for your buck that you want. And, and I agree with her. I do get that. Um, and then uh, there was some controversy brought up, though, because, you know, 
they went to Brian Bender of Politico and Leslie Kane of uh, at the same or around the same period of time to pitch this story to them. Mm -hmm. And uh, and Brian Bender's came out the same day. Right. But uh, and he he said, you know, he was just making the point that, um, you know, and I've been making this point and kind of been getting up beaten up by it also. And, And John Greenwald makes this point a lot, which is that, you know, these guys are not gods. They're not, you know, immortal, omnipotent beings when it comes to the TTSA group. They're great. What they did is extraordinary. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And I, they're, I'm huge fans of them. I mean, I mean, I, what they've done, I think, is really important. Um, but just because they say something, it's not gospel. If Lou Elizondo says there's a crashed UFO and um, materials, that doesn't mean, you know, that's a 100% certainty. If Lou Elizondo says the Wilson documents are real, you know, he's got to prove it just like anything else. He's got to prove what he's saying. Um, I think some of the problems that came in early on with me and, and others when mainstream is they were saying we were, uh, you know, reporting on things that Lou Elizondo was saying without verifying them, just believing every thing he says. That's not true at all. Uh, every single one of the reporters that was getting criticized, such as Leslie or, or, uh, Brian Bender were verifying what they were saying with other groups. And that was confirmed. And some of the people that this information was getting verified with were Harry Reid, who started the program. Um, his, you know, integrity is very high, having been, you know, uh, such an important senator. And, and you know, uh, others were like Bigelow himself or or Dr. Eric Davis or Dr. Hal Putoff, who were contractors uh, that were contracted for the program. So all of these people were backing up a lot of this information. Brian had kind of bender came out. Yeah, but you guys didn't give me the full story in the beginning. He said that recently, which is true. Elizondo, the $22 million that was spent did not technically go to a tip a program uh, or maybe a better term would be portfolio um, on the UAP topic. That's, inaccurate even though that's what's being reported and that's what the media keeps reporting to this day the 22 million dollars went to a program called osap the advanced aerospace weapon system application program osap was developed and now we have this completely confirmed even though i've been writing about this since 2017 because i knew and i'll I'll explain how i knew but uh, now it's been confirmed because this book, Skinwalker at the Pentagon, has come out, which was mostly written by uh, Lachaski, who was a DI agent who started and ran OSAP. He was in charge of it, the oversight of it. And Colm Kelleher, who was a lead scientist. And mm-hmm. then George Knapp, who is a, a reporter, of course, who's very familiar with Bigelow and all the people that were involved with it. Um, and I mentioned Bigelow and Bigelow Aerospace because they were the ones contracted by OSAP to do the work. Why did I know once I found out that Bass was involved, that this was more than UFOs? Because we all know what Bass has been up to. Bass has been investigating Skinwalker Ranch and a lot of the paranormal around that. And we've heard them say we are also looking at other locations where there are paranormal occurrences. So they were looking at, you know, all the stuff that was in this book, Skinwalker, uh, the Skinwalker Ranch book that George Knapp and Colm Kelleher had written in 2005, which is actually what got Lachaski interested in looking at Skinwalker the Ranch. And in that book, they described these wolf-like creatures, these portals, uh, Bigfoot-type phenomena, cattle mutilation. 
And that's what was investigated. And in the book, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, Lachaski at all, you know, confirmed this is what they were looking at. They were looking at it um, mostly from kind of a, a valet type of perspective, which is that you can't look at the UAP phenomena on its own. You have to include all the other paranormal stuff that's kind of wrapped around it. And, you know, there are people who report these other type of sightings and occurrences with UAP. That was their justification. What's interesting, though, with that $22 million paranormal investigation, which is what I call it because I think that's more accurate, mm -hmm. is that they determined all of this was real. And Lachaski in the book confirms he also believes all of this weirdness, all this paranormal phenomena was real. So uh, that was a bit con uh, controversial because people took what Brian Bender said uh, kind of to to the nth degree, saying, look, Brian's saying that that Elizondo and all these guys are liars. And Brian's saying, no, no, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that, you know, not everybody is 100% honest or clear in this. Not everybody, uh, everybody has their own agenda and are going to just share the part of the story uh, or have their own spin on things. And that was his point, not to say that they're liars, but that to say that, hey, they're going to share information in a perspective that's helpful to them. Um, and we have to be cognizant of that. And nobody's, uh, you know, uh, um, innocent when it comes completely innocent when it comes to just being straight with all the information out. So that's what he was trying to say. Um, he and Elizondo get along great and talked often. So I know that they talked that out too. Cause, um, uh, so, so they're good with it, you know, um, so so let, let's talk a little bit about skinwalkers. So they're there on the ranch. They're exploring everything that's happening. And, and I understand why. Why would you like to say why would you, you know, sit and wait for a UFO of a Bigfoot's coming out of a portal you know, you know, that yeah, type right. of thing, uh, and not do anything about that? So right. it, it kind of just like whatever it is appears there and happens there or, or, or was at that time when they were doing that that research. So they were there. Were they actually at the ranch involved in that study that uh, John Alexander was in and all that? Um, which one do you are you referring no, to? I'm, I'm, I'm John uh, Bigelow had John Alexander in this group, and I can't remember. It had a. Oh, OK. Yeah. So early in the 90s, Bigelow had started the National Institute of Discovery Sciences. That's uh, his yeah. first when he got involved with this in the 90s, he was trying to kind of give money to researchers. Um, and he also was coalescing, uh, you know, UFO research groups to try to get them to work together. Uh, an organization was actually called the Fund for UFO Research, FUFOR. Mm -hmm. This group was essentially got money from Bigelow and a couple of other um, financiers, and their job was to kind of dispense that money and, and work together with MUFON and other groups so they can all work together. And that didn't really happen that well. And eventually Bigelow decided, I just need to start my own scientific investigation group called the National Institute of Discovery Sciences, NIDS for short. That's right. uh, he yeah. had John Alexander <laughs> help him get people together. And that's really what tied together the, what I would call men who stare at goats um, yeah. contingency and the mm -hmm. Bigelow contingency, because John Alexander, if you've read that book, men who stare, stare at goats was, was a part of that whole, you know, era where the army um, general um, Brigelstein. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation? 
where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Bridenstine, I forget his name, but he was trying to, uh, you know, use psychic phenomena and, uh, and look at paranormal stuff and take it seriously and seeing how the army could better themselves uh, by using this phenomena. And it was made fun of in a movie by that name, Men Who Stare at Goats. And there's a nonfiction book written about that. But John knew those people, uh, which is kind of the arena where Hal Putoff comes from and Dr. Eric Davis. And he connected all of these people with Bigelow. And they they ran with this National Institute of Discovery Sciences group that folded not soon, uh, not long, too long before uh, Bass started up. Uh, what's interesting is, uh, you know, Alexander was left out of the Bass era. And uh, mm. I know from my interviews, he kind of felt like, uh, hey, why did you leave me out? I have my own theory. And I'll share you my theory because this gets to some of the other important aspects like the Wilson document um, is that, you know, John Alexander was an inspector general. That's extremely important because that's kind of a judge when it comes to, uh, you know, the army or any other agency. These are the people who know the rules and enforce the rules. So if you need someone to, you know, you need to go to someone to figure out what the rules are. If the rules have been broken, you go to an inspector general. That's why, you know, this Harry Reid stuff, this stuff about Elizondo's boss getting in trouble and Elizondo going to the IG to file a complaint against his old boss. That's where they go is to the inspector general. Mm -hmm. So that's what John Alexander did. So he knows the rules and regulations. And, and so when there are claims of these black projects or other things, which would fly in the face of rules and regulations that are checked for everything that the army does, he's like, hey, look, I was one of the guys, I was one of the gatekeepers, and that's not going, you know, I don't see that at all. Um, he's also more grounded when it comes to, you know, those sort of issues. So I think he was a bit of a wet blanket um, in their perspective is my only possible explanation for that. Um, so, for instance, John Alexander feels that he can definitely debunk the Wilson documents. He was there during that period of time as well. He knew Wilson very well. They were part of the same organization. Uh, Alexander lives in Las Vegas, Nevada, and they're part of the same organization that Wilson allegedly came to Las Vegas to um, when he uh, met with Dr. Eric Davis in these alleged notes, the Wilson documents. Um, and John Alexander confirms that Wilson was not in town during that weekend, during that event, because uh, he, you know, he wasn't part of that event. There was an event that weekend, but that Wilson was not part of it. So he's adamant. And that a number of other uh, procedural things, why that document is not legitimate at all. That's so right. He, yeah. He's very against it. However, you know, listening to the need to know interview the other day, Lou mm -hmm. Elizondo seems to be think there's something there. And I do know that uh, some of the other people inside of, you know, the Bass group also think there's something there. So it shows where, you know, there's a disconnect there in, in how they feel things work and, and what's going on behind the scenes. Do you think that'll ever be resolved? No. The Wilson documents? Right. 
This is what's weird with me for the Wilson documents is I don't understand even when Elizondo says, oh, they're going to look into what are they going to look into? As far as I know, I think that it's a dead issue because Admiral Wilson, first of all, he's already in the past said this isn't true. This never happened. More recently, Billy Cox, again, uh, a writer uh, for the Sarasota Times. I don't think he writes for him anymore, but he blogs once in a while. But he interviewed Wilson again and asked more specific questions. And Wilson was like, no, it just never happened. If I were to be given immunity, I would definitely go talk on the stand uh, on a hearing. But I wouldn't have anything to say about this alleged incident because it just didn't happen. Um, So I think he's being as honest. And... So if you've got you've you've got nobody backing the document, you have Mitchell who says he was aware of it, he saw it, but it doesn't mean he, but he doesn't have any proof that it happened. Um, you have Eric Davis who isn't coming forward, who's the alleged writer of the notes. Um, but let's say he did come forward, uh, then this is going to be um, his word against the admirals. And I'm sorry, as much as I really like Davis, and I don't think Davis is a liar. But um, his word would not stand up against an admiral's. And how are you going to push this? Where, what are you going to do? I just don't know how what action can be taken uh, moving forward on this. So I don't know that anything will or can come of it, really. Right. And, I, you know, these, these it things reads so badly, too. It does. Uh, that's well, I remember when I looked through it, and it's been over a year that I look, actually looked through it, but uh, I do remember that. And uh, I mean, the conversation is so in, weird and convoluted and it, it's yeah. like not a I, professional conversation. I can't yeah. imagine if I had a conversation like that with the, an, an admiral, I'd be like, I wouldn't even buy it. I'd be like, this guy's nuts. He's, right. Doesn't even yeah. make any sense. I mean, it starts with this argument of him getting livid over this, his name being associated with any of this at all. And this is the first time he's met this guy uh, who is supposedly Eric Davis. And then he spills the beans on everything after he was upset that anybody was talking about this at all. It just makes no sense. It's so crazy and wild. I and just the, don't know how it can go anywhere. This all came about, um, I think I have this right. There was a Australian researcher in Dr. Edgar Mitchell's estate looking through his files and he found this. That's what I remember recalling about how it came about. But I do want to say things as an appraiser, I'm in estates all the time and appraising things, sometimes mm. documents or antique documents mostly. But I was in an FBI agent's estate and he was in China and his China footlocker, when it was open, was full of documents. And there I found MJ-12 documents, you know, copies of them. Right, And I remember calling Stan Friedman. I said, is this bizarre or what? But they can just end up in someone's estate. Maybe they have an interest in UFOs. Maybe they, whatever it is. Um, but these things, just because they're in an estate and in, in an estate doesn't make them more viable. It doesn't change really anything because maybe it was right. someone that gave it to him. He thought it was interesting and tucked it away. Otherwise, you know, why wouldn't he have exposed it back then? Himself. Right. And you run across this in the CIA and FBI files. Um, and in this case, now these Wilson documents are part of the record of this hearing. That doesn't give them any more validity at all. Um, but 
But I and you know I want to answer a couple of questions. One person would said they haven't been debunked the, oh, the let me, Wilson let me documents. Try to find Wilson. I would disagree with that. They've totally been debunked. I mean, when you go to when the only person involved is on the record saying this did not happen, that's a debunking, and I think that's a, a strong debunking. Um, and it's not, and I think that's where people are confused. It's not on them to prove this didn't happen. It's on us to prove it did happen yeah. and to, you know, request any action of this admiral to do anything, to even address them at all, what she's done on his own. I don't think we have any business to do that without any proof or evidence. Um, I think that's harassing this poor guy. And I think it, it's just, it's, I think we need more proof than this goofy note that no one's going to admit to ownership of um you know I the, just, the, the sad i can't part. imagine even if i was backing it i can't imagine where you would go with it or, or where it can even go and the sad part about it is if anyone like uh this wilson is going admiral wilson is going to deny it the first thing that comes out of everyone's mouth is of course he's going to deny it he's lying he's covering it up you know that that is what you hear and he, there's no way, no way to uh, win in that situation. Exactly. And when it comes down to his or he said or she said, that's the only place it can go. And in the he said she said battle, you know, he's going to win. He's an admiral, um, and nobody has any proof that what he said it, it didn't occur. You know, there's there's zero proof that um, that he's lying about this. So unless someone came up with something com convincing. Um, that's what I keep saying, you know, and, and I really, for Davis's sake, hope he doesn't come out and talk about this because it would hurt his career. And if he does come out and talk about this, and and this would be the best scenario, he better have his receipts. He better have some evidence. And if he does come out and talk about this and has evidence, of course, that would be exciting and that would be great because we could go somewhere with it at that point. But I think um, he's kind of enjoying him not talking about it. <laughs> I think so, too, because, you know, he's working for a company called the Aerospace Corporation, which is a think tank, um, an aerospace think tank. Uh, and a lot of what they do is very sensitive. And they've told him, don't talk about this. He's even said, I can't talk about this. So um, for that reason. So, you know, him talking about addressing it at all is him, um, you know, putting his career on the line and, you um, Unless he has a good re unless he can prove something, you know, it would be terrible if he had to come out and say something and then nothing happens and he damages his career over something like this. And it's happened before. Edgar Fouché uh, was a scientist who brought about like all this TR3B crap. And um, he was given fake information. In fact, he was early on given a, a stealth bomber picture and was told this is the TR3B. That was completely false. He got in trouble, though, for sharing it because he, like Eric Davis, had classifications and worked in on classified projects. But if you're given something and told this is classified, you cannot share that, whether it's real or not. In this case, the stealth bomber or the stealth fighter that he got a picture of obviously was not a TR-3B, so that was false. But he still got in trouble because they said even – if it's false, you don't know whether it's classified or not. You can't share that. That is breaking your oath to, um, you know, keep classified information classified. So, uh, so that's I, the other danger. 
Okay, the TR3B. <laughs> I had someone call me from New York State that said, I understand you're the expert on the TR3B. <laughs> I said, I have no idea. That That is, that, is that a rumor that, I mean, I guess, uh, Michael. Um, a rumor that you're attached to it? No, no, <laughs> no, that it's real. Oh, yeah, there's a huge rumor. In fact, I think, you know, the, the, the rule of thumb out in the UFO community is that it's real. I think that a, a lot of people, you know, whenever you talk about triangular UFOs, oh, that's a TR-3B, which mm -hmm. is a dangerous and uh, uh, perspective because then people blow it off and they don't pay attention. Uh, triangle UFOs are obviously a great mystery, and um, they're not TR-3B. In fact, I'm skeptical there has ever been a TR-3B. Even if there was, maybe there was a prototype, maybe, but probably not. The, if you look at the background, it's just rumor and hearsay type of stuff. There's zero evidence that there is a real TR-3B. Um, I don't think that there was a real TR-3B. Uh, really, the the I think there'd be two experts, Michael Stratt on the pro side. That's who I was thinking, uh, yeah. Because yeah. he was friends. And then uh, David Marler on the con side. David Marler, of course, being the specialist on triangular UFOs. And he did a great talk, actually, in Arizona just a couple weekends ago. I was there, and hopefully they'll let me – a lot of times they let me post uh, on YouTube some of the lectures, and I'm going to see if I can post this one because he did a great job. He was like, okay, TR3B, best case, you know, started in the 80s. Well, let me show you all the triangle sightings prior to 1975. Right. And they were, you know, he had an abundance of extraordinary craft. In fact, many um, credible cases in which, you know, it was a triangle with the light configuration people ascribed to the TR-3B. So I think he, you know, can demonstrate this phenomenon uh, of these particular type of triangular craft, even predate um, this potential TR-3B. Uh, yeah. So he addresses that in a great manner. Um, really wonderful talk. All of his talks are great. Yeah, uh think the world of him yeah i'd like to hear that talk myself you know i mean that, yeah you will love it so i'll yeah. get that online or if i'm sure she's gonna let me post it yeah yeah all right so going back to what we we're talking about the uh the controversy about a tip um so evidently a tip did was not funded does that mean that that was more of a hobby so here's the confusion, and this is where it is really confusing. And this is why this is kind of a kind of place to Brian Bender's complaint about not getting the full story, because a lot of this confusion is because a lot of details was left out. And now we get this detail, but we can also see that not everybody's on the same page. And that's what is kind of the root of the frustration of people like John Greenwald. He's like, whose version of this? Should I listen to? Um, I would kind of argue, though, that it, that's a bit in the weeds. That it's it's important and, and interesting to know, but it doesn't negate the big picture. And the big picture right now, I think, is more important, um, which is this. So OSAP, I just talked about how OSAP was his paranormal project. And it was hidden. Reed and the others didn't want it getting out that they were do, working on this paranormal $22 paranormal investigation. So when Reed first started, you know, wrote a memo where he wanted it to get SAP access, which is special 
project access. Um, and that's essentially the, the correct term for a black project. So he wanted it to be a black project, not just to hide what they were doing, but more so to get access to other SAP programs, other black projects. Um, he was denied. But in that memo, instead of using the term OSAP for the name of the group, he used the term ATIP, Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, um, which was essentially a nickname that he and Lachaski had come up with. And we know more about the details from the Lachaski book now, the Skinwalkers at the Pentagon. So they came up with this nickname ATIP because they didn't want people to know about OSAP. Uh, and they put that in the memo. So ATIP, the first time the term was used, was as a nickname for OSAP to kind of hide what OSAP was up to. Hmm. Was time moved on, Elizondo joins the program in about 2009. And this is when OSAP is going away. This is when OSAP funding is ending. And um, they decided, well, let's continue this portfolio uh, of UAP military sightings under the, term, under the name ATIP. And that's what we'll do, because by this time, uh, the name OSAP had gotten out there. According to Lou, there were a lot of religious fundamentalists who were scared of the weird paranormal stuff they were looking into, and they didn't want them to. Um, after actually Harry Reid put out that memo with ATIP in it, Lachaski says in the book that the OSAP name and their, what they were doing got out there by essentially people, detractors, people who didn't like what they were doing, let everybody know, hey, look what these goofballs are up to. So OSAP had to kind of go away. Um, and so what uh, Lou and uh, what they had decided to do was keep looking at these military UAP sightings. So that's what Lou inherited. The money was gone. ATIP was not funded. But it's more accurate to call it a portfolio. And this is, you know, where Lou and, and Nick Pope kind of have a similar problem. This is a group of files. It's a portfolio. Um, and it's files that they're looking into. A lot of people ascribe the name project or program, um, which are descriptive terms in what they were doing. It was a project. It was technically in general terms a project that they were working on, but it wasn't a technical program or project that was receiving any direct funding. Um, it was a bit of a passion project, but it's more along the lines of, uh, you know, like we see on TV a lot of the times where a detective is got his heart in a case and he doesn't want to let it go. He wants to find yeah. the bad guy. And mm -hmm. the boss says, all right, detective, I'll let you keep working on that, but don't forget your other responsibilities. It's that sort of thing. It was the type of thing, and I've seen letters from Lou, where it is something you're assigned to. So he was assigned to this ATIP portfolio, and so were others. And so it was a real working kind of project, even though it's not technically a project, the more accurate term is a portfolio. That's hmm. the term that um, Brian Bender uses. Um, and it's a term that you often hear. It's just portfolio is kind of confusing for the public. So portfolio often gets replaced by project by the media or by people speaking to it. Um, because Nick Pope was the same. There was no technical UFO desk, but he was working at the desk that received the UFO files. So Nick Pope was working on those UFO files. People complain, oh, he says he was working on the UFO project or the UFO desk. Those didn't exist. True. But how is he supposed to describe what he worked on, him or Lou? And, you know, it, they're not the ones that 
So it's, it's a semantics thing, but I think the best way to call it was a portfolio. So it was something he could uh, probably spend as much or as little time as he wanted on it, but he definitely, it was a real thing that he and others were working on and they were also coordinating with others on as well. And that's been confirmed. Um, it's been confirmed in this latest, he latest hearing. They confirmed a tip was a real thing. Um, and we've confirmed it, you know, through several different outlets of what, uh, that ATIP was real uh, and that Lou was truly, you know, assigned to this. This is something he was assigned to um, and that he was working. So when you hear like the, the basement podcast or something like that, when, they're, when Green Street is basically saying that Lou didn't have anything to do with, with it, basically, um, he in fact was working something. It just wasn't a funded program. Right Right. He was I working a portfolio. And yeah. uh, yep. Martin says hi. <laughs> but uh, a portfolio. Yeah, it's just like anything. You know, if you're on um, if you're someone who's working on, let's say, several accounts at your work uh, or if you're in law enforcement and you're working on several cases, it's mm -hmm. the same thing. You've got an account. I'm working five different accounts. Uh, one of them's the Johnson account. It's the same thing, you know. Elizondo's doing all this counterintelligence uh, for, uh, you know, terrorism, but he's got this one UAP case that he's also working on or file that he's working on. And that file includes a bunch of different cases that they're working. So it's along those lines. And it is kind of confusing to describe, although. And, and so what Green Street is talking to, though, is that this game between the DIA, um, you know, people, the the demon, the, the bad person, the person who's gotten kind of deemed as the enemy of ufology is this Susan Goh, who is uh, the PR person for the DOD the on this yeah. topic. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, you know, they've been putting out some spurious information, information that is misleading or just outright false Um disparaging Lou or his association uh, or assignment to any of this. And that's been the struggle. And according to Lou, this is all mostly due to his boss, this Harry Reid, who was just kind of relieved of his responsibilities recently. Um, he said he was really against this. Lou seemed to not trust him. And so he didn't share, you know, what he was doing on UAPs with this and, and, uh, Lou said that's where a lot of this blowback has come from, as well as, you know, people just not being happy with him coming out and talking about this. So uh, Green Street has kind of said, hey, you know, the DIA makes some good points. We don't see any proof of some of these other aspects of this program. Um, so what's going on here? Um, and he's also saying, you know, uh, Lou has not just said the same thing as Lachaski or to as Eric Davis. And so, for instance, what I mean by that is, I've interviewed Lou and Eric Davis on this topic. These, anybody else have this problem where these yeah. pot pros don't say in your ear? <laughs> but anyway, uh, Davis had told me ATIP was a name that Harry Reid made up and he got the name wrong of the program. And that was his perspective as a contractor. That's what he thought happened. He's wrong. Uh, that's not what happened. When I asked Lou, Lou said, well, um, that Harry Reid had used the term, I can't remember exactly what Lou had said, to be honest, right now, but it was a little different than what Lachaski had said. So there are differences, but I think those differences are from their 
different perspectives. You know, Lou wasn't in the meeting when they chose their name, essentially. So he only has what he thinks was the reason that they chose the name. And I think that's what uh, happens a lot. But also, um, it's a little bit of parsing words, no doubt, um, Mm -hmm. saying, hey, Lou said this, but he said this here. Mm -hmm. Green Street is translating those as completely opposite. Um, So he sees deception, whereas someone like me sees just different verbiage being used and that there is a connection typically. Um, And and that's where kind of these issues are. I'm much less quick to say these guys are lying or deceiving people. I think that they're just describing things as best as they can. And that if you actually had a conversation and get together, which typically they have a reason as to why they use whatever verbiage they use. Mm hmm. Well, well, it's all interesting. And, and, you know, I watched uh, Green Street's The Basement, um, whatever it's called, podcast or office, whatever, basement office. And I was more confused than anything else when I got yeah, done with that. You know, and, and here's the unfortunate thing with what Green Street has been up to is I feel that maybe he could build a good case for um, – potential deception going on and, you know, potential uh, misleading terms in that, hey, they said this once and they said this another time. Um, There might be some cases like that of which then you can ask directly, why did you say this at this time and this time, that time. But a lot of his videos also full of things that are just misrepresentations or falsehoods themselves. I think there's a lot of misleading um, stuff in that video. And so it's unfortunately because Green Street's doing a lot of what he's accusing Elizondo of doing, where he's misrepresenting a lot of. And I think he knows because there's certainly things that I've conversed with him on Twitter where he took the take that is inaccurate. Um, And so it's that's always unfortunate. I I, so I, I think you need to take. Green Street's information with a huge grain of salt. Um, right. Well, there's a, I was just going to see if I could pull up this letter, um, the the read letter. You, you know what I mean by that. Um, that. That's one thing that he never, he never brought up in that video is when Harry Reid confirmed. Uh, I had it here, but I can't seem to find it. Oh, right. Right. And that's the other thing. Yeah. We have an abundance of evidence. And I think that, you know, and and this is where people are kind of getting confused, too. Journalists don't typically rely much on FOIA because FOIA takes forever. Um, So, for instance, I made uh, a request like many others for the OSAP docs uh, years ago. Soon, you know, as soon as we knew the ner- name OSAP, many of us put in FOIAs. We went to OSAP docs. We just got those a couple months ago. And it seems like a lot are missing. But the point is, it took years for those to get out. You can't wait years for a story. So what do you do as a journalist? You develop sources. People like Elizondo, Reed, Mellon. You go to the firsthand people who were there, firsthand witnesses, and you ask them, First-hand witnesses in those, this case are Harry Reid, the contractors, uh, Bigelow, Hal Putoff, Eric Davis. These are the first person. Lechaski, who ran it. 
these are the first person in the know people. They're the ones you ask. And all of these people have confirmed what Elizondo saying. So um, maybe Elizondo isn't clear about some of the aspects they're complaining about. But when it comes to the big picture and the big ticket items that have been reported on, you know, he's been accurate. Um, and so I think that's what's important. Right. No, no, I agree. I agree with you. So, um, yeah. And there, the only other thing that I heard a lot was that um, the time, the times were off when the program was supposed to start, you know, maybe that's that, maybe that was a simple error or whatever, but that was for part of the confusion. Well, but then again, and this is another one where I kind of um, think that the critics have everything completely wrong. And Lachaski talks about this in his book as well. Uh, you know, they're talking about, you know, timing as to when the program started versus when the contract request went out and when Bigelow was hired. There's nothing abnormal about any of that at all because it, it's very clearly laid out. And like Lachaski says, they keep talking about how, you know, OSAP was in existence for a period of time before Bass was hired. So what? They And that OSAP had staff. Of course they did. This is a DIA project. When the project gets started, you need to hire some people to figure out the project, to put together the request um, for bids from contractors, and then get that out there. So, And now we know from Lachaski's book, there was even some work being done, that Lachaski had that Nimitz document that George Knapp leaked, uh, created during that period of time, right when OSAP started. So there was work going on that Lachaski was doing even before they got Bigelow on as a contractor. You know, hmm. um, some people have called it a sweetheart deal. Bender even calls it that. But I think people get misconstrued that, and it's a sweetheart deal, but what was the the gift? The gift to Bass was not $22 million. According to Bigelow, he actually had to spend more than $22, something like $10 million, million of his yeah. own dollars because $22 was not enough. And I believe hmm. him because he's always spent a lot of money on this. But yes. mm -hmm. um, what the gift was was the opportunity to do this official government paranormal project. And who else would have done it? They're trying to say that this was, you know, this kind of pork belly project type of thing. Um, but I don't think there's any evidence of that. Uh, they, there could be evidence of, you know, kind of a sweetheart deal to give Bigelow the, this paranormal project. But that's what these guys wanted to do in the first place. And I think, you know, Harry Reid's job is to represent his his constituents. And I think that certainly if we did a poll right here, but I think if you did a poll with the American public and asked, hey, do you want the government to at least have a small program where they're looking into the paranormal? I think most people would say yes. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people are into ghosts and all of these other things and would like something like this. So I, I don't see, you know, this is a, this big kind of pork belly handshake type of thing that people are talking about. And even when they talk about the contract itself, saying it was custom made for Bigelow, that Bigelow started up his bass group to win that contract before the contract was even out there or before, you know, um, the bid was out. True. But of course he's going to have early 
notification that the project started because, you know, he was requested by this DIA agent in, I believe it was 2005, to go visit the ranch because this guy read the book. That guy came to the ranch, had his own paranormal experience, um, Lachaski, and then started OSAP. So Bigelow was in the conversation from the beginning, and mm. it was all about researching a ranch that he owned. So, of course, he's going to be in the loop on what's going on and that this is coming down the pike. Wow. Um, wow. Other companies did have the opportunity to bid for this project, but who's going to bid for a paranormal investigation when uh, of a ranch when you're you're bidding against the guy who owns the ranch, who also has an entire aerospace organization who he's willing to to put into this as well. You know, you're going to lose. You're going to lose to the guy with the more knowledge. And and this happens where companies have proprietary technologies that and they're contracted to um, for whatever those proprietary proprietary assets are and they're not going to give up their proprietary assets to Lockheed because they won the contract. No, that's not going to happen. So it often the bidder with the proprietary, whatever it is, is the winner for that reason. They're the only ones who can do it. Um, hmm. So, so I don't think I don't, there's a little bit of smoke. I don't see really any fires though. And I think the biggest indicator is the DIA has obviously been um, challenging Elizondo and, and the group, and they have not raised any concerns. I think that if the DIA had an issue with any of this, we would hear from it. Um, and one of the biggest pieces of evidence of that is that uh, they launched that Air Force OSI investigation about the videos, essentially saying, look, these videos, Lou wasn't supposed to put those out. Let's you know, investigate this and potentially bust him on it. And it turned out that Lou was not that the videos were not classified. So there wasn't a problem with Lou putting those out. So, well, he didn't actually put them out the very first time though. Right. Because wasn't there that well, German company that the, the, the gimbal one was released in, you know, years ahead. Yeah. The, the, that one was released soon after it was available. Hmm. Um, it's a mystery who did that. Uh, from behind the scenes, uh, I guess there are people in the military know who it was, and <laughs> it was just someone who was upset. So from what I understand, it was someone who was upset about the ridicule, who was essentially saying, look, this happened, and it was real. Here's the video, and that's why they put it out. And I believe you know, it then was reviewed by a, a military blog, um, and that's yeah. how I first came uh, many of us first were aware about the Nimitz incident mm. and uh and that person probably knew who leaked it as well and was probably alerted by that person to write that story but essentially yeah that was somebody and and uh from you know listening to your interview with Sean Cahill recently you know he was talking about how uh that video was available to everybody and everybody on the ship or at least in the Nimitz carrier strike group it sounds like um, mm -hmm. we're watching that video mm. and, um, aware of it. So any one of those people could have recorded it with their phone. And that's what I think happened and then released it. So that one was released, but you know, early on it was leaked and that person could have gotten in trouble. Maybe they won't at this point. Um, but that's a sticky subject. 
But uh, that person mm-hmm. has not gotten in trouble as far as I know. Then after that, the New York Times leaked the uh, videos. One of the big arguments John Greenwald has is that obviously, you know, they're saying the New York Times got those from Elizondo. And Elizondo said that's not the case. So is Leslie Kane. Um, and Chris Mellon finally came out. All of these in my interviews where they've denied these or come out. And then Chris Mellon came out and said, I was the one who put out that video. I'm not sure if I bent any rules. And if I did, tough. I want yeah. this topic is more important. And I was willing to bend rules to make this happen. Um, and he's, you know, very unapologetic about it, which I appreciate, to be honest. I think yeah. um, I really appreciate what he did. And I think, you know, I, I don't. Uh, so so there's still argument uh, there. Elizondo says he didn't provide them. Chris Mellon has come out and said he provided them to the Times. But now, you know, they're arguing, well, Elizondo did provide them to TTSA for TTSA to make money. I don't know. Uh, you know, TTSA was a uh, public benefit corporation is what it was called, which is similar to a nonprofit, but not quite. But still, you know, it's a it's a um, corporation which has to provide like education um, and things to the public. Um, and I think that's the intention and always has been the intention of TTSA. Uh, I don't think TTSA was ever really about money, um, especially when you're talking about the majority of the people who ran, started TTSA, didn't need money. I mean, the two major players were probably Tom DeLong and Chris Mellon. And um, yeah. Tom DeLong is is doing well. Uh, and Mellon and Bank. Fact, yeah, and Mellon <laughs> the Bank. The Mellon family. <laughs> the Mellon family is not going to yeah. need money for a long, yeah. long time. In fact, they're... I think lending money to nations who are needing money. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm going to play. Yeah. I'm going to take. A, we're going to take a one minute break here. I'm going to play. Uh, this is a, a basically a little commercial here. Two books. Uh, one for uh, Ralph Blumenthal and one for our blogger who writes the uh, and is also does the audio blog for this channel every single week. Uh, Charles Lear. Here we go. The Believer is the chilling true story of Dr. John Mack a renowned Harvard psychiatrist and Pulitzer Prize winner. This is an outreach program from the cosmos to the consciously impaired. He risked it all to investigate human encounters with aliens. The Believer, Alien Encounters, Hard Science, and The Passion of John Mack. Written by award-winning former New York Times journalist and author Ralph Blumenthal. Now available in paperback from High Road Books. Available June 2022 from Flying Disc Press. A book about the people involved in the mystery, covering the golden age of flying saucers. Using newsletters, magazines, case files, official documents and more. Sure to leave even the diehard skeptic wandering. By Charles Lear, New York, USA. The Flying Saucer Investigators. Available on Amazon from June 2022. The Flying Saucer Investigators, Flying Disc Press. Ta-da! Yeah, I'm really glad uh, Charles wrote that that book. He's been writing blogs for uh, for three or four years here, and he's been really great at it. And, and he does some really deep research. I saw a couple of questions in here. I don't know if you looked through the chat at all, but one was uh, let's see. Oh, um, that 
when we we don't know someone wanted to know who the guy was to say hey look at the asa that was a pilot we have no idea who that was that would be really interesting though if we eventually got to know who those pilots were um that were you know the video i don't know how i i didn't even see me uh, posting that comment it was that was by accident um but we can know, address the, that though i would like to address that one oh i didn't even see it <laughs> All right, I what was it. the question? Yeah. Um, he said, I think two things can be true about Lou. He is furthering the topic and he's shutting down specific people for reasons unknown to the public. I don't agree with the second part. Um, not that he's not shutting down people. Um, he is, and I think that, uh, you know, I don't know. Martin's better at staying out of the, the fray than I am. Um, but still, you know, I think I, I'm, a, I'm there a lot less than most. And I think that Elizondo needs to learn to, and he has now, because he's gotten off of social media. Unfortunately, he's not doing any more podcasts right now because um, he's just had enough. But he, he you know, and, and I've talked to him a lot about this. It's hard for him. And it's, it's just like with celebrities, you know, they get beat up on social media and they get really, uh, it has an emotional uh, effect on them. And it's, it's had an effect on him and it, and it really frustrates him and hurts him. Um, and he doesn't totally understand it. Um, even some of these people that are good researchers, like Greenwald, I think he acknowledges Greenwald's a great researcher. But I think, you know, his what he feels is he doesn't understand is how vehemently he's attacked. Um, mm -hmm. And he feels that, you know, he's negatively attacked as opposed to people just kind of trying to genuinely ask questions because he's, I think, in his mind. And I believe him coming from a place where he wants to help. Um, so he, he's really frustrated by all of that. So I, the people he is canceling or shutting down, I don't think it's a mystery at all uh, of why he's doing that to, to these people he's doing it to, because they're typically people that have been uh, very negative towards him. Um, perhaps a better way to address it is to ignore them or to address them directly. Uh, but, um, you know, I think people can understand if, if people are attacking you and calling you a liar, you'd be frustrated, especially if you're doing your best to, to help. Yeah. Well, uh, Leslie Kane said last week that that hearing probably wouldn't have happened in Washington if it wasn't for him and Chris Mellon. Exactly. Know, exactly. We wouldn't be where we are without Chris's game plan and mm -hmm. Lou's uh, participation in that plan. Um, I mean, mm -hmm. him coming out, and, you know, retiring, putting his career and his, you know, um, livelihood on the line to come out for this topic and to push it forward. And he's still doing that. He's still putting his career and his livelihood on the line every day that he's sticking to, you know, being this kind of UAP activist. And um, I don't think anybody can argue that he's not one of, if not the most influential person right now you know, pushing all this forward. Mm -hmm. He certainly had a lot of high demand after the hearing. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, right here is another question. Going back to the Wilson document, do you think they will follow up on the Wilson document and speak to its validity in the next public hearing? Or will it stay in the sci-fi level, <laughs> in your opinion? I think uh, at skiff level, meaning uh, classified oh, oh. level. I don't think so. Oh, I think yes. Sorry. My yes. guess is going to be they're going to come out and say we asked uh, Wilson about it. He said there was nothing to it. We couldn't find anything more. 
uh, and they'll move on. I think they'll debunk it and move on. Um, I just don't see, there's nothing actionable there. You know, if you use that term, I mean, I would just challenge people to read that document, but from this perspective, not whether you think it's real or not, but if you were, um, you know, let's say a, a government employee and you're like, wow, I just got this Intel. How do I act on it? I think that you'd find that there's not much to act on. There's not much you can do. If at the very first level you're getting shut down, there's there's not much more you can do. And I've always said this this document, and it's a very – I don't want to offend anybody, but I really feel it's a very amateurish way to go about um, trying to make anything of what the document says. The document itself, even if you believe it to be real – is not a smoking gun by any means. It's mm-hmm. it's just a tool to point you in the right direction on where to hopefully look and find those smoking guns. Um, and that's what people need to do. It's lazy and it's ineffective just to throw it out there and say, look, here you go. This solves everything. And I think that it's just another example of the amateurish uh and I would say it can be spun a silly way. You follow, just go about this. And I think that's what's going to happen. I think it's going to be used as yet another example of how um, the UFO community is silly and shouldn't be listened to. I mean, that's what we had in the first hearing. When they invoke Jeremy Corbell's name at the mm-hmm. beginning of the hearing, and mm-hmm. then they show the video that he has been pushing as a UAP, a genuine UAP, and debunk it. You know, yeah. that was uh, everything they do is in, is for a reason. And they did that to poo-poo Jeremy Corbell and his followers and the people like him. Um, That's because they were drones and that was the, the right? Is that the one you're yeah, talking about? Yeah, they were drones. They were, yep. So they, they were drones and that was a, the lens in the, uh, in the night camera. Yeah, and a lot of us, myself, I never spoke to it because I didn't feel it was a very good video at all. I felt it obviously was was not a UAP because um, every point of light is triangle shaped. Um, And some of those are stars. So that means it's an effect of the camera. Um, You know, and those of us who have been looking at these videos for decades and I'm not an expert, I don't call myself an expert, but you know, I can at least pick up on that. Having looked at these videos for so many years, I can pick up what are the obvious, you know, kind of tips as to whether this video should be looked into further or not. I didn't feel that video deserved it. Um, But that's what they did with that. That's why they brought that up. And that's why that was an issue. What else did they do? They said, this is what it's like when we get a real video. They were trying to say there's very little data. Oh, yes, they sure showed that. (laughs) And they showed that terrible video where there's just one screen. They have to have better stuff than that. Oh, they've definitely got better stuff. But why would they show this one? Because, like they said, this is the type of stuff we have. So that video can easily be passed off as air clutter, you know, this term that they were using. And I think that's their strategy still. I think that's what the take is where everybody's a little off on the hearings. The hearings were not about what was said in the hearings. What the hearings effectiveness and what went on with the hearings all went on back backstage. It all went on in the public's eye, but you know, the hearings were a tool to get the DOD to do what Congress wanted. And it worked. 
that's why the hearings went the way they were. Um, they essentially, if you look at the history, you have John Kirby a couple weeks coming out ago saying that, you know, we're doing what they want. We're coalescing the reports and we're getting all the agencies invested. Um, and, you know, we're moving forward on this. That spurned, you know, Brian Bender to write that article in Politico, where essentially the Congress people were like, that's not what we asked you to do. And that's not enough. People like Gillibrand is saying, we're asking you to collect reports and to investigate these reports, you know, not just collect them. We want you to scientifically investigate these reports. And she said, we want you to look at historical information as well. Yeah. So she was telling them a whole set of things that were in that bill that they want that pass that they wanted them to do. So as soon as that article came out and then they announced that the hearings were coming, uh, you know, a couple of days before the hearings, John Kirby comes out and says, we're going to do everything that she wants us to do or they want us to do. We're going to do investigations. So they, they changed their tune. So essentially right there, they disarmed the Congress because the Congress, the point of the hearings was to come at them and publicly kind of grieve their, their issues. Hey, we asked you to do all of this, but you're saying you're only going to do that. Well, right up front, they were like, okay, you win. We'll do everything you want. So the hearings were really friendly and nice because the hearings were like, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do everything you want. This is going to be great. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Elizondo makes the point that, well, they only have two people. How are they going to do right. all this stuff with two people? I mean, they must, have, issue? they must have uh, staff as well, wouldn't you think? Exactly. They're Well, they don't. But they're going to need it. And we don't know what their budget is like. But, you know, Elizondo is making the point uh, the UAP task force only had two people. If this new group is only going to have two people, it's not going to be able to do that long list of things they're going to say they're going to do. So how are they going to accomplish those things? And those are the type like, of questions do you think needs to happen. Is this like window dressing? You know, I mean, do you think? Well, I think that's what the DIA is trying to do. So the DIA is still trying to say, OK. We're going to do everything you want us to do. We don't think we're going to find much, but we'll do it. But they're still, I think, trying to de-escalate the whole situation. And they're dragging their feet because I think what they think, historically, these sort of things have been flash in the pan. The public is really interested in the topic for a period of time. But then that topic, just like on everything, you know, plummets after a period of time. And then they'll be off their back. So they're on our back right now. But they'll, they'll forget about this and they'll leave us alone well, shortly. They, they I think that's what they're point. hoping. Yeah. yeah, exactly. They have a great point. So if, if you were them and you wanted this monkey off the back, you could see how this is a good strategy. And it's a strategy that may work. It's just up to us to try to help keep this momentum going, to educate right. lawmakers and people in the task force. Because there are people like Elizondo's colleagues who are in these tax forces and they're into this topic big time. They're trying to educate themselves now. A lot of these anonymous people that we'll find in our Twitter are actually people that are in the inside trying to get information. And uh, so we have to inform people. And this is where I get really disappointed with the UFO community kind of doubling down on the crazy and not really paying attention to what matters, the stupid Wilson documents or anything like that. The Wilson documents cannot help us. They can, you know, if they continue to just make fun of us and debunk everything, that's just going to show the public, yeah, these UFO guys never did really have ever anything. You know, the DOD's right. So what we have to do yeah. is be more careful about this, go yeah. back to the basics. And we have to be proactive and friendly. We have to, you know, contact 
our, our officials and people in the government and be helpful. Say, we want to help you. We want to provide you information. Here's some information. Look at this. Look at that. You know, mm-hmm. that's what's going to be more effective is calling them and saying, thank you for looking into this. That's going to go much further than just acting crazy because just acting crazy is going to um, make this all go away more quickly and it'll serve the the people who want it to go away. Exactly. Hang on just a second. I do have to address this. Uh, Mario Woods was going to be on this week, and uh, but he's had some health issues. So uh, that's when I called my good buddy Alejandro uh, Rojas. So he hopefully he'll be back. Uh, he'll be on this show on the 21st. We'll see if he's in good shape by then. Uh, but, uh, you know, so when you're, you're talking about how all of this goes, um, you know, it's just it really is kind of. Uh, um, amazing though how um, so few people knew that this hearing happened hmm. I don't know if you I mean in the public you know a lot of people I've talked to out and about hey did you hear you know about the hearing the public hearing and then what no uh, you know it's it's uh, there are a few people I've talked to that have heard it but but it's a lot less than I was hoping it seems like the mainstream media didn't do much uh, yeah. have much of a job with it and if i was involved in the main street stream media i would think the government is doing a hearing on ufos that's big it seems but like they it did do a lot i think every major outlet had a story or two um cnn i had at least two i can think of hmm. uh, new york times had one at least um the hill hmm. has had one and then also posted an opinion piece from chris uh melon today so i i don't think it's the media's fault it's the public interest and i think that's what you know we need to be grounded on a little bit here too um you know i just posted today how bts was uh that that korean pop group was at the washington uh in dc uh during the press conference this morning and it was the most full that that press conference room has ever been they said Ah. so that's what the public is interested in. And yeah. that's what we have to consider is what the public interest is and where there is interest in how much that interest is. Because, you know, there's a big interest in the UAP topic. Um, but I think only I'm finding a, a small percentage, maybe 10 to 20 percent, if not less, are into factual data and. Uh, about this topic most people are really into the sensational and the possibility and the imagination partially Mm -hmm. because i don't think that our field has done a great job you know sharing facts uh it's been mostly speculation and of course the entertainment picks up the picks it up and then they do all the speculation the television shows right now are for the most part awful they're terrible. They're they're just really they're not on par with the truth at all. And I get calls from these producers all the time, and they never want to stick with the facts. They could care less about the facts. I've been on. Really? I've been interviewed. I'm going to be kind of begging on these guys, but it's true. I've been interviewed maybe two or three times by ancient aliens, and my clips only make a few seconds. Why? Because I'm typically debunking this stuff and offering, you uh, know, information that is counter to the kind of the exciting story. Um, so like Stephen here is saying, most people are into the folklore. He's exactly correct. And, and in a way, it's a little bit not their fault in that some of these mythologies out there um, that are really big, you really got to dig 
to be able to figure out the root of, of those stories. And unfortunately, That's many right. times they're they're spurious, as we know, or, or very yeah. dubious. So um, it's tough out there. So I always think, you know, of who our audience is and for at least the SCU. And I think very much so I found for my show and I think yours are the mainstream, are the serious people, because I found, um, you know, lately that a lot of these military people, these task force people, uh, media people who are trying to figure out what's going on, they were listening to my podcasts and they were reading my website. And they're also, I think, listening to your podcast. And so they're they're listening to those few outlets that do try to stick to the facts. And, you know, those type of people very quickly can identify the speculation. Um, and so, first of all, welcome to all of you new people who are looking for more uh, careful information. But, uh, yeah. um, you know, yeah, that's, that's right. I and think what we have there, to remember. There are, there are new people all the time. I get contacted all the time on the show by people that are just starting to look into the topic, which I think is great. So um, the presenters, well, I don't want to skip around too much right here. Okay. Um, but I, um, but I do, I do want to take a little bit of a break because I do want to talk about um, something that you text me on the other night and uh, whoops, let's see, let me get that up here. And here we go. Here we go. And that is this right here uh this mm. came out and i'm telling you it's uh i've been getting a lot of feedback about the the new film that it has dropped um a few weeks ago so many people absolutely love this this story and i just got contacted uh today from uh uh or yesterday i think it was from deb coyle she is the woman that was on the show that had a south african encounter herself back in the 1970s and she is uh, she rented it. She's going to sit down with her husband and watch it. Um, but it really means a lot to a lot of people um, because of the way Randall did this movie. He did he did it about people. And uh, I think it's very mm -hmm. good. It was very good. I uh, can't speak highly enough about the movie. And it kind of goes back to and this is aerial phenomena. Um, and it kind of goes back to. Um, the question earlier were people complaining about spending money and the rental fee for this video is expensive. It's $20, but I'm telling you people do it. Don't complain. Do it. This is one of those things where don't complain about a $20 rental for a film that is important as this. And not only that, they wanted to release it um, through like Netflix or one of those bigger yeah. outlets mm -hmm. and they couldn't like at the last minute that fell through and then they looked at their original edit, the edit they did themselves, and they're like, you know what? This is too good. We don't want to edit it because they had to highly edit it to get it through yes. this mainstream distributor. They're like, yeah. we don't want to edit it. It's good as it is. So they decided to distribute themselves. So right. they're doing this all on their own, risking you know, not getting money back. If you look at this movie took something like – I think I met Randy 13 years ago, and he first got me excited about this movie. 13 and a half years he had into the movie. I've been so flipping excited and we all have been waiting yep. for this film forever that I started to think oh, it'll never come out. And if I it does, <laughs> it's probably going to be a mess because they're going to have to throw it together. But when you see the list of donors, just tons, that list goes on forever at the last yeah. of the film. That's what he had to do is go out there and get money from people. I mean, you can't 
share information and a big platform without money. So um, it's worth the $20. Please go spend the $20. They deserve it. The film is, I was floored from beginning to end. And it was, first of all, the subject is a really important topic. I mean, the case is, is a great case. Um, but the filmmaking is superb. The filmmaking Absolutely. is yeah. just excellent, no matter the topic. So not only is the filmmaking, it's it's in it really pulls you in to the emotion. You really get a strong feeling of the people involved because they do. It's such a human film. Yes, um, it is. Which makes sense because Randy's like a big teddy bear. He's a big kind of emotional person. Yes, um, and. It's just beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. I cannot say enough for the movie. You must go see it. You must support it. And it's the right movie at the right time because it is aliens, kind of, you know, yeah, which is where I go. Yeah. It's not where you go typically, but it's um uh it it does it in a credible way. And you know, it opens up, you know, now that we know UFOs are real, um, there's some other things that we've got to consider here that are that are pretty uh, heavy, and that's I think yeah. what this introduces. So, I think it's a it's just a beautiful film. Whether or not you even believe that aliens were involved at all, or that it was mistaken identity, I think you can't help but uh, fall in love with all the characters. Yeah. And then it's the best coverage of John Mack's life and career that I've ever seen. Yes. Um, yeah. It's yeah. so good. It really is, and that's really when I saw that those those films used to be on YouTube, and there's they, they disappeared. And oh, really? Yeah, I had not been able to find them, and so, but I mean, it was very comprehensive uh, in the amount of the interviews that he had on there. It was just really, really wonderful. And you know, Rand, Randall Nickerson is highly in debt on making this movie. Really highly in debt. Yes. So give him forty dollars. Yeah. (laughs) It would take him a lot a lot of years to pull out of it. So but he he did it. He once he got involved in it, you know, his if anyone takes a look at his wildlife photography online, it's amazing. I mean, he is just that he's so fussy about everything he does. And uh all B roll with the elephants and the wildlife all through the movie, and you really get a sense that you're there in in South Africa and it's it's just beautiful. Yeah. Right. So anyway, I hope some people will uh, spend a little bit of money on that and you're going to really be happy that you did. So um, and um, neither one of us are getting paid for saying this. We just both think it's an important film. Um, yeah, it's beautiful. I cannot be more proud. And it ends with the UFO Congress. That's right. With, uh, that's kind right. of like a important yeah. moment. Kind of the climax is Emily Trim speaking at the UFO Congress a few yep. years ago, you were there, right? I was there. Yes. Yeah, it yep. was. And I, I say this, it was probably one of the most amazing moments I ever experienced at the conference because everybody was just quiet. Everyone, and she was yeah, reading from a were, piece of paper. People were crying. People yeah. were crying. And I think I teared up. A, it was a, just amazing. Standing ovation mm-hmm. when she finished because, you know, it was coming from her heart. Every bit of it was. It's and, funny because I was working with Randy for a while to get him our video files of her talk, and they were huge. So it took us a long time. I had to put them on a drive, I think, and mail them to him. And then he's and I was like, "Sorry, it took me so long." He's like, "Oh, that's okay. 
Um, and then a couple of weeks later, he's like, we actually found some footage that we took that we like better. But uh, <laughs> I like the footage they use because the, it's very, more personal. It's like mm-hmm. right there with her um, on stage. So you can see like from her perspective and then you see the people stand up. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. That was really something. Uh, this is uh we're going to be talking about this now, if we can, The what's yes. coming up for you. Uh, so these are the speakers that are there at this conference. And let's talk about that conference. What exactly can we expect? Yeah, I think that uh, what I really love about what we're doing right now is it's so important. Um, we, have, we really are, you know, getting um, a lot of uh, contacts, uh and that's what I've been busy with. Like when you're talking about talking with people who didn't know about the hearing, I've been just all about the hearings and getting information ready and getting information to lawmakers. And that's what we've been busy with. And I think that's what's really exciting about the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies, because we're doing what the task force wants to do. Mm. And um, an example would be, you know, we're going to be showing the, the UAPX data because the UAPX, this group who was featured in the Terror in the Sky documentary, um, they are the science guys are also part of SCU. So they're going to be presenting the science of what they actually captured in that Terror in the Sky, um, um, those those UFO hunts that they did. Right. So and- that's going to be really exciting. Now that that was some type of phenomenon in the in the sky. Uh, I saw the movie. I saw the screener when it when I was given that. Um, and you know, we we both know the people that were involved: Kevin Knuth and uh, uh, Matthew. Uh, I can never remember how to pronounce his Matthew Zydegas, Jeremy Zydegas, yes, um, yep. Altman uh, or Chris Altman, and uh, well, Dave Altman, uh, another guy, uh, right. Many people, um, Gary Voorhees, I mean, uh, Kevin Day, and I know the the guy who runs Osiris, a lot of great people, a lot. And I know I'm missing a lot of the really cool key people. So you'll have to go check out UAPX, Um, a great group. It's really cool they did this, and it's kind of nerdy. The film is UFO nerdy, which I'm glad uh, because that's what I am, a UFO nerd. (laughs) So it's cool to see these guys using their tech. I could see mm-hmm. how other people might be a little bored with it. But, yeah, they caught this weird anomaly in the sky they called wormhole-like in the film. But later on, they uh, put out a uh, a newsletter, a press release saying they're actually now saying it's an anomalous weather uh, artifact or, you know. Oh, is that what it was? Mm-hmm. Some sort of anomalous weather phenomenon. But our point is, and my point is that that's the importance of scientifically studying this field is that UAPs are not one thing. There are many, many things and yeah. no doubt ba- that many of the things UAP are, are typical terrestrial phenomena that is not extraordinary, but stuff we haven't discovered before. And that's what science is all about. Um, it's one of the things that NASA talks about. Sure. You know, maybe we're, we're not on Mars yet, but all along the way, we're creating new technologies and discovering new science uh, as we do what we do. And that's what the important, one of the important points we got to push forward, I think, with UAP scientific investigation is we're going to find out what some of these mysteries are. And many of them are going to be 
natural phenomena we just haven't discovered yet. So if these guys discover some anomalous weather phenomena that can make a hole open up in the clouds and then close again, along with some like sprinkling kind of phosphorus lights, I mean, first of all, it's fun to look at. It's incredible. Second of all, they're making a discovery. They're making a scientific discovery um, about something we didn't know about before. And so that's why scientific investigation of UAP is so important. Yeah, I mean, they certainly had the equipment there, didn't they? That was that was something else. Yeah. They could have, you know, too bad they couldn't have stayed there for a year. You know, oh, I mean, yeah. instead of just for a week or whatever, however long it was. Yeah, a, a project like that, they're lucky they caught anything. Um, right. It's because, short time. you know, yeah. yeah, we've done UFO hunting. And that's one of the problems that UFO hunting shows are so hard because they want to capture something. And that's what's funny. It's easier to go to a ghost hunt and potentially capture something than it is like a UAP hunting. Um, because, you know, it's it's hard to just it's just far and few between that people you know, capture something in the sky. That's real. You know, there are people who will talk about money, ask you to spend $3,000 to go out in the woods with them. And they'll tell you everything in the sky is a UFO. And then when you say, no, that's a plane, they'll just tell you, uh, well, UFOs can disguise themselves as planes. You know, um, sure, you could do that every day. And I think you probably know who I'm talking about. But um, I know yeah. you're a big fan. Yeah. But uh, yeah. But, you know, when it comes to the real stuff, that's that's harder to come by. Yes, yes. I think um, I'm going to try to take a call. Now, this is mm. uh, this is my, just to let everyone know, this is my own phone. And uh, so I will be, we will not have a screen, so please be good. And uh, oh. if you're not, go ahead. Go ahead. I'll oh, just while you're doing that, I'll address one of the questions. Someone said, Alejandro, you need a zip code sighting alert so folks will go outside and look and photograph. That's what we're doing. This app is going to be coming out in a couple months, um, but it's going to be super cool. It's, everybody's been trying to build an app. TTSA was trying to build an app. Um, we've got their data and more uh, in our app. To be honest, I don't know all the data TTSA have, so I can't say that for sure. But I suspect we have what they had and more um, in our app. So you're gonna have historical sightings, but more than that, it's a real-time interactive thing. So you'll get an alert if there's a sighting near you. So you can go outside really? and get a picture or video yourself. Um, wow, and then that exciting. way we can, yeah, it's super exciting because that way we can triangulate. Right. And it's got yeah. some of, it's got, I, I would say, well, I, I think I could say this because there is no under. It's got the most advanced AI associated with it to be able to look at the attributes of the sighting to, to determine its veracity um, also. And so you can do a bunch of different correlations. So speaking of our conference, one exciting thing that we're doing that I'm working on right now, we have an intention study uh, that the SCE is conducting. And you'll find out some more about this. But what we've done is we've taken, we've scrubbed all the sightings. And I'm talking about well-researched and investigated sightings, which mostly comprise of blue book sightings. Why are those the most important? Because these are the government's own sightings, um, very credible, which are, you know, typically lawmakers, military, uh, law enforcement, and I mean by police, you know, where there's multiple witnesses, some telemetry gathered. Uh, we've boiled it down to around 600 cases. And so then we're looking at the patterns on those to determine what can we determine about the intentions of whatever these, uh, what these are cases where they've de demonstrated, you know, uh, technology beyond what we have. 
Um, and what we've discovered so far, first we looked at nuclear sites, right? Because it's supposedly that's where they are. And I've always been suspicious. Do we really know that? Just because we have a lot of documents that show that doesn't mean we know that. The only reason we have these documents is because they're FOIAable. Our, the other UAP ones aren't FOIAable. At least we don't know how to get them. Um, John Greenwald, of course, has gotten some, but not all. Um, so when we ran our study, we found that actually there isn't more sightings in the uh for SAC and ICBM silos where like Maelstrom happened and stuff like that. Of course, there are these important singular cases like Maelstrom that need to be analyzed and considered. But what we did find and what we were basing this up against were some controls. One control was military sites that were nearby. Another control is uh, population areas nearby um, to see, hmm. you know, are, are there more sightings in the nearby military sites? Are there more sightings in the nearby uh, population groups? What we did find is that there was a statistically different pattern when it came to UFO sightings over nuclear facilities. But the where the facilities, where the increases are, where was, there were significantly um, more sightings were actually production and weapons assembly facilities. So I mean, what we're starting to see is if this is actually showing something, it's more along the lines of there's an interest in our technology uh, and our development of technology, not our deployment, but the development. So in the areas where these new technologies are being developed or ramped up, that's where you see more sightings. I think that is really terribly interesting, especially considering it makes sense if there is a third party involved, especially an exotic third party. You know, these are the real ways and how you gain insight into what they're up to. And that's what's exciting to me about it, because really it's painting this picture that perhaps and more work needs to be done. We're going to release all of our data, including our databases, what cases we used why we used the cases that we used um, so everybody can scrutinize and certainly people will mick west for example probably his have his own take that'll be completely different than ours yeah um no doubt the the, the bunkers out there will sp spin it the way they want to spin it but still i think the data speaks for itself that there's something there um because we use traditional methods the same methods the uip task force would go about this that's what we're doing and so um i think that's extremely that's significant that's great we have a we have a call i'm going to give this a try we have ron calling from florida ron welcome to the show thank you martin it's always great to be on your show and alejandro uh, we always enjoy hearing from you and uh, thank you thank for you. the work that you're doing uh we just got back from uh, New Mexico and Arizona and uh, spent a week in Roswell and a week in Tucson and two weeks in Phoenix and Albuquerque and then went down to Saqqara. So uh, <laughs> we had a good time out there. That's a fun trip. Lots of cool white sands and Holloman. Lots of cool stuff to see there. Am I coming through all right, gentlemen? Yeah, you are. Yeah. Do you have a question uh, for uh, – do you have a question? I do. You know, as far as, as this hearing the other day, uh, I, I think we're moving forward nicely on that. It's going to be a glacial progress. Uh, I also, you know, the DNI is not used to giving out information to the public. So I, I fully expect them to play rope with those for a while, and then I think they'll eyedropper that information 
out to us. But uh, Alejandro, what, what was your opinion of, of this hearing in, in general? Do you feel that we're moving forward nicely? I would say we're moving forward. I, I would say that uh, I agree with you. And, and perhaps I should have been uh, a little less naive than you were. Because uh, I think the term that you use, that it moves glacially, is is accurate. And I was a little surprised at how far they had gotten. But I think, you know, it goes back to what I had mentioned before, that, you know, just by having the hearings, it gave, it sent the message Congress wanted to send. So by the time we got to the hearing, we got this sanitized, nice back and forth, as opposed to Congress saying, hey, do this. And the DI saying, no, we don't want to. You know, the DIA was saying right off the back, yeah, we'll do whatever you want. But the problem I think that arose was just how far along they are, which is at step zero. You know, they're not even close to as far as Elizondo seemed to be with a tip. So I think that's where it's important. It seems like I don't know if they just didn't listen to his input or what. But, um, you know, some big alarms were such as not to know about or or be prepared to share anything about USOs makes no sense. This whole thing's supposed to be about transparency, but they don't want to tell us anything about USOs, one of the top topics. Uh, another one was the nuclear issue, because, of course, myself and I know Chris Mellon, because uh, we got his information, too, that he was sharing. Uh, we're sharing that this is a big area of concern, especially for safety, which seems to be what they say they're all about, safety and security. Um, that was shocking that they didn't know anything about the nuclear uh, relationship. So it just shows mm -hmm. that they're they're just starting. Um, th and I think Leslie Kane, in your interview, uh, backed up by Elizondo's interview with uh, Need to Know, just demonstrates these guys are at step one. So you're right. It's, it's yeah. showing progress, which is great. Um, and I agree with Hal and with Leslie. And, you know, for people like us who have been really pushing this forward – and reporting on this and being made fun of to get it on the record all across the board that this is a real phenomenon to take seriously. That's a huge deal. That's a huge win for all of us. Um, we may be disappointed that they're not further along, but to your point, at least we know it, it will continue to move further. We just got to keep on them. That's for sure. So overall, a big positive surprise that they hadn't made practically if no progress at all, but, you know, that's what we're doing behind the scenes to hopefully help prod them along. And I can say we've had some success and um, we'll share more about the successes we're having in the near future. But we've gotten people's attention on the Hill and we're we're getting them information such as the information I just reviewed. Excellent. All right. Hey, Ron, thank you for the call. Oh, you bet, Martin. You take care. Take care. Well, I'm not sure, quite sure what happened with the volume on that, but, but, uh, it worked. I could hear you could hear. Okay. So yeah, uh, I'll probably won't take any more calls because of that because I, it just didn't seem to work very well. Uh, so when are you, <laughs> sorry, I was looking, I think okay? I wasn't sure if the dog just came home from getting washed. I was checking him out. Oh, okay. So <laughs> it's always exciting when the dog comes home from getting washed. <laughs> yeah. So you're heading down to to Alabama where this is taking place now. Is yeah. That, is that available to see? Is that going to be available to see on a stream of any kind? Yes. We're sold out when it comes to seats. So uh, unfortunately, if you haven't bought a seat yet, uh, you won't get one. But we it's limited space, to be honest, at the venue that we're at. Um, but you can watch online. 
So you can go to the website and get a streaming uh, option. And we use, so SCU uses the same technology that we use at the UFO Congress. And if you've watched UFO Congress streaming, you will know that it comes off impeccably with zero to no technical issues. Oh, there he is. <laughs> you can see the dog next to the UFO there. Everybody always loves to see the UFO. Oh, yeah, there's the doggy. Yeah. All right. <laughs> He's <laughs> waving. Hey, buddy. Great little, great little guy. But, um, yeah, so you can watch it online as well. And uh, the cool thing is that that app that we use works so good. I mean, um, you know, everybody typically has great experience with it. So don't worry about having problems. The other cool thing is that once the uh, video's, you know, done, it's just like Zoom, it's recorded. So you can watch it at any time after the event. Yeah, that's excellent. And um, – Ryan Graves, um, yes, yeah, I've I've had some conversations with him. He was he was going to try to be on before this this conference and never never made it on. And last week, he uh, he was going to be on with Leslie Kane, but couldn't make it on. But uh, his story is is quite incredible. What do you think about? Um, just a couple of questions, and it's only because I was talking to a, a friend that's involved in UFOs that are very balanced uh, person. And he made a good point. He said, if these things were showing up every single day, um, why wasn't there more, you know, filming or investigation of them? And this isn't that long ago. You know, this is 2014 or something, 15 or something like that. Yeah. You know, I think that's a really good question. Um, I think that we heard from um, who was speaking to this recently. I can't remember, but essentially they were essentially saying that um, it was on, I think Sean Cahill spoke to this on your interview uh, where he was saying that, you know, it's just so weird and it's not like coming close. It's not doing anything threatening that people just blow it off to some kind of radar problem or something like that. So they don't think of these weird things. And I think that, you know, it's a tough sell, but uh but what Sean Cahill was saying and trying to tell people is what John Alexander has been saying for decades now and which we experience as, as UFO investigators, which is that, you know, when you talk to a military person, especially, but even law enforcement, and they tell you about a UFO sighting they've had and you say, did you report that? They're like, hell no, I didn't report that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've spoke to. I had a similar story to Sean Cahill's too. I spoke to one radar operator who worked on the dew line there, you know, up on the, in the Navy. And they kept having these, when they turned on their radars where it would go higher than usual, they kept getting these weird signatures, you know, these things flying around super fast. And this was Franklin Carter uh, was the name of this gentleman. And they would call him up because he was the radar guy. They would say, Carter, we got another Carter contact. Can you come take a look? So he'd have to run up there and he'd say, no, everything looks, seems to be looking right. So they would log it and move on. Eventually they had all this headache where, you know, people were saying, are you sure your radar's not screwed up? They sent engineers to go look. They said the radars were fine. So eventually they solved the problem by just adjusting the radar so it didn't go so high and uh, the problem huh. solved. <laughs> but Franklin would ask, you know, it seems like we're the only ones that they're getting mad at about this. You know, and he asked his colleagues on the other ships, aren't you guys seeing these things? And they all said, of course we see these things, but we don't report them. 
We're not crazy. Right. We don't want that headache. So that's been the case all along. It, it It is more of a case of ignorance and bumbling and just really screwing up that the military ignores these important things because they're too weird. Um, you know, when Sean Cahill had said this and I heard a similar thing, you know, well, you hear a similar thing over and over again. And it makes me kind of think of like a ghost. Let's say there's a sh- there's a ghost on the ship. The Nimitz has uh-huh. a ghost and sometimes they see the ghost. What would they do with that? They would probably just like, oh, my gosh, that's crazy. They wouldn't record it or anything or do anything. They'd be just like, well, supposedly some of these goofballs see a ghost on the ship. And that would be it. I think that it seemed really they treat the UFO thing the same. If they think it's a UFO, if they think it's strange or it's something well, else, a ghost, I, they don't know, record to, it. To argue that a little bit, a ghost is not a possible threat. Right. Um, you know, but, in the sky, if these things are in the sky, they could be a threat in many ways. But that's the problem is that these people are um, interpreting this as a non-threat. And and that's the issue. And mm. um, e- But even the military has and justifiably in a way has called this a non-threat because if the scenario is there's objects out there that seem to be observing us, but they don't bother us, that could technically be a non-threat. And that's the argument the air force had in the past with blue book is that these aren't a threat. They're not messing with us. Um, They're probably nothing, but it's not a threat. It's not a national. and, And that's why this threat terminology is so important not to demonize aliens, but to demonstrate there's a real reason why the military needs to take this serious. That's why the threat dialogue comes. Um, this whole conspiracy about people trying to demonize aliens is just completely ridiculous. And it, it does not, the people aren't trying to understand how this really works and what the military is up to. That's why the threat dialogue is so important. Cause if we can't demonstrate this is a threat, the military is not going to care should they care? I think, you know, certainly the people involved are arguing that they should. And to your point, you know, something like this happening could have been a threat, but they ignored it. They had a blind spot to these anomalous readings on their radar um, because of the taboo around this topic, which is irrational and just ridiculous. So yeah. um, and always well, has been. Alejandro, we have to end it here. We have a kind of a hard end at the show. But thank okay. you so much. It's always a. A real pleasure. It's great. ExploreSCU.org is where people can go get tickets. ExploreSCU.org. OpenMinds.tv, of course, is still there. And, you know. AlejandroTRojas.com. I have that all linked below. All right. You Perfect. Take care. Thank you. All you right. too. Take care. Yep. All right, everyone. So thank you very much. I have Nathan from Calling All Beings on next week. I can't remember what his last name is. But thanks so much for joining us tonight. And we'll be back next week as usual. And if you're at Pine Bush, uh, say hello. I'll be speaking there coming up this Friday night. Very good. And remember to keep your eyes to the sky.